All right, I'm back. Shabbat Shalom for the second time tonight. I just stepped out, of course, to get a cup of coffee, and it was perfect timing because I was able to give my daughter a kiss goodnight, uh, a baby Rivka. She's you know seven weeks old, and she was in her adorable pajamas and all ready to go to bed. But um, one of my sons is playing video games in there, and she wouldn't even look at me. She was just watching the screen. So... I got to kiss her goodnight, but I don't know if she even noticed. That will probably probably be an ongoing theme in life, I figure. My One of my first lessons as a father with a daughter. So that being said, I dropped into this room my PDF on Cities of the Millennial Kingdom. And I'm really excited about this series. I have discovered in things in here that I was not expecting at all. And I have to apologize starting out that you, you may be a little bit lost in this if you didn't watch, if you didn't read this in advance or uh, watch the last video I did on it. I did a private recording with Josh and we read through uh, the first 30 pages of this document, which is on the Church of Rome. Now, just to give everyone a, a quick synopsis of this, I was explaining beforehand how... Uh, before we started recording, how I, I've been encouraged to go back on Facebook. And I'm not a fan of Facebook. I'm sorry if anyone out there loves Facebook. I'm not a fan. Um, I, you know, it was obviously started by Intel. It is an Intel operation. Uh, it is a, it's a psychology experiment, and it encourages people to have negative uh, encounters with you. It's just people go on there and they, they act ornery. And I'm, I'm convinced some people just just scroll through and just say rude things to people just as rude as you can you know and um so i decided to in the last week to go back on my facebook account and start promoting and i started talking about the millennial kingdom on there and i find found how difficult that is to do because where do you begin with this you know people are hearing me talk about how you know i'm investigating the 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 city of Rome and, and Britain and how these are millennial kingdom cities. And I had one guy telling me today, he, he was like, really, he thought I was really confused. He's like, uh, those, those cities, they don't love God. Um, so I don't see how, you know, that would be like Jesus ruling from there. And, and it, it's really hard to kind of help people see these. For those of you who've looked into the mud flood, you will, you will know that there are mounds and mounds of research into this just so many hours it takes to 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 re uh examine the world in a fresh light to, to throw out all the propaganda oh. all the indoctrination all the education that you know hopefully you didn't spend a hundred grand on uh to 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 look at these these cities in a fresh new light and i always encourage people start with the mud flood right start with the mud flood see how this was a worldwide event or a series of events and, uh, you know, they've been lying to us about that and that there's this grand society beforehand, right? So I think everybody here, at least, um, I hope, has a kind of a basic understanding of what I've been talking about when I say that um, I believe that the millennial kingdom of Messiah physically happened on this earth, not spiritually, but it physically happened and that we have, we have evidence to show that in scripture as well as on the earth physically. Now, what I have tried to do is the same thing I did with the flat earth with everything else. I try to show scripture. I try to show Canon, but also, uh, extra, um, extra Canon or canonical, uh, scripture. And as, as well as, you know, I get a little bit into like the, the church fathers and things they had to say. All right. So 
with this series particularly, The Cities of the Millennial Kingdom, what I'm attempting to do is I, I have the theory that I, I started looking at Europe and I started going like, why, why is Europe so glorious? Why not, you know, I mean, there, there's places in Australia and, you know, Northern Africa, and you can see these societies everywhere, but there's something about Europe that is just glorious. I had the chance to go through much of it and, and see the, these awe-inspiring places. You go to like the Palace of Versailles, one of the most beautiful places you will ever go, and they will tell you that it was built by the Louis, uh, like as a, as a week, weekend hunting lodge. And you're there like, what do you, what do you mean that was this, they have like gold staircases and they built it to hunt, to hunt deer on the weekend. Like that, that's the most, but you have to accept these narratives because it's like, well, what else is there? Right. All right. So the, what I started doing is I started to look at the, the, the 12 apostles. I'm going to th throw Paul in there too, but uh, I looked at the 12 apostles and then uh, also the 70, which is talked about in Luke that Yahushua in his life, he sent out 70 emissaries all over the earth. And I wanted to find out where did these people go and where did these people embrace the gospels? And are, are these the same places that we see the glorified cities? Uh, I showed Rome the last time around and uh, the church of Rome was, uh, we're going through, of course, uh, the epistle of Romans. That was one of the things that encouraged that. And I believe that um, much of what we see with the, uh, the city of Rome and Italy and the beauties there come from, from that. Tonight, we're going to be going over Britain. Now, I will warn you that, well, I'll tell you in advance that you guys need to come back next week because all I'm doing this week is I'm laying a case for the authenticity of Britain, but I'm not prepared to give the whole story. Next week, y'all willing, I'll have this finished, and I'm going to have something that uh, may blow some of your socks off uh, to show, and I'm not going to talk about it tonight. But I am coming to the conclusion, or at least I'm leaning in the direction, that Britain, yes, the island of Britain, including Ireland and Scotland, was the epicenter of the Millennial Kingdom. I will go so far and say, uh, and I'll be talking about this next week, you can call me on at that time, that Britain may have been the new Israel. It may have been the land of Ephraim. Now, if you went through our, our, our Hebrew Romans, uh, Hebrew Revelation study, one of the, the big shocking things, it, it seems so clear to me that uh, Yahuwah was done with Israel. He was done. I, it, it, the Bible ends on such a dark note because it's this idea that, you know, Abraham has promised this, uh, this inheritance, this land that his children are to be in. And then we're given the, the blessing and the curse. They chose the curse. And at the end of Revelation, he's like, this land will be, uh, you know, Jerusalem is Babylon. The Jews were the whore of Babylon. Um, the, the land would be a place of devils and demons. It's unclean. Don't go there. We're never told to go there again. Um, and I, it's like, well, wait a second. Then what does that mean for the Millennial Kingdom? Well, I'm going to be building the case next week that there were two tribes. There was Judah, but there was Israel. And uh, I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you the sleight of hand, where I think the Bible actually talks about and points to um, to the blessing that would come to Ephraim in a different location than historical Israel. All right. So some of you might know what I'm talking about already. Anyways, if you jump to page four of this document, I talk about the resurrection. That's one of the things I wanted to cover first. Now I made a big blunder, and I haven't fixed it yet. 
uh, I talk in here about the 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 resurrection of the dead that I believe already happened. This is one of those things where you try to talk to people about this. Like, what? Like, like they give me like a, you know, that kind of like that, that retarded face, like, uh, you know, like they start looking around and going, where's the resurrected? Noel? where are they at? You know? And you guys know what I mean. You know, you look into this and I believe that the resurrected were on the earth. All right. Uh, that, that it, it all went down the fire, the cleansing and all this kind of stuff. And so the, the, the blunder I had made is that I, I, you guys know the, the meme where it shows the car, it's driving on the highway, and it takes the quick last-minute exit, like the detour. I did that. I made that mistake. I took the detour. I saw the detour, and I took it. And I, did, I said how the resurrection, the resurrection of the dead was purely spiritual and not necessarily physical. And people were jumping all over me on that. And I get it. I know why they did it. And I want everyone to know that I totally understand that Yahusha HaMashiach physically resurrected, that it was not just spiritual, that his body resurrected. However, I, I need to develop this more because the Gospel of Nicodemus is fascinating, and it, it gives two types of resurrections, if you pay attention. The people who, um, there were two types of people who went to Sheol that were resurrected, those who had just died and those who had been dead a long time. The people who had just died within the last month or so, or rather recently in history, they were physically resurrected. These are the people it talks about that they came out of their tombs and they lived life again. But there was another type of resurrection, and it was all this, the, the set apart through history, going back to Adam, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these guys. They were in Sheol, uh, a, um, Abel and you know Noah, you, you name them. They were resurrected from death to life into spiritual bodies. They never came out into tombs. They just went straight up into paradise. Okay. So what I'm saying is, and it's fine if you disagree with me, I'm just going by what I read in these texts. That's all. I'm not trying to form some doctrine based on what my pastor or church or, or whatever. I'm just trying to look at these texts that I think it's completely possible that some people physically resurrect and some uh, into a spiritual body, meaning they come out of the tomb and some people just come straight out of Sheol into their spiritual body. Both have the same effect. Now, I will say that if everybody physically resurrects, I just want you to think about this. Um, we, you can think about the circle of life. What happens to people when they die? They become grass. They become the trees. They become other animals. So if we're trying to reassemble our bodies thousands of years later through all of our atoms and all that kind of stuff, I mean, we're talking about like, you know, the, the butt of a bear comes out and the ear of a rabbit. And like, you know, it's all like, you know, and it's coming together and forming these bodies. I mean, if we're really talking about that. But I think I made the case that the, the, the resurrection happens from within first. I quoted from the Gospel of um, Thomas, I think it was. And let me see. Let me look here. I think it was the Gospel of Thomas. Oh, no, it was the Gospel of Philip. Excuse me. It was the Gospel of Philip, where he talks about how uh, we, we, we always, we, we look at it in the wrong order. He says, if you die first and re then resurrect, then you're not going to be resurrected. You have to first be resurrected, and then you die, right? Um, and the idea is that we have to be resurrected. We have to have the spirit, the Ruach, the Ruach HaKadosh within us first, right? So anyways, I just want to put that out there. So I'm not saying that nobody physically resurrected, but some people couldn't get past that point. All right. And then we get into the, um, the Church of Rome. I'm not going to read that again for you guys. We don't have the time tonight. So I apologize. Hopefully you won't be lost. I found... What I did was, is I traced Paul's letter to the Romans, and I started looking at the actual names of the people he salutes in there. And 
I was just blown away by what I was finding. And just, and I will quickly say that one of the things I was really touched on, I said this last week or the week before that, was uh, studying Andrew. Because Andrew, as you guys know, is the, was the brother of, of Kifa, of Peter. Everybody knows Kifa, right? He was the rock. Um, and Andrew, you know, even the Gospel of Mark is really, you know, Kifa's right, and he has a couple of epistles. Andrew has nothing. The guy, he, he was never in the Bible. He never tried to be in the Bible. And yet, what I was blown away by the research is seeing the, the total effect that Andrew had throughout the Mediterranean, throughout Greece, through Turkey, through all that area, planting churches. I mean, the guy was actively working for the, the kingdom. And, um, and just, and seeing that and not getting the credit, you know, we, we glorify and Ooh, John, he wrote a gospel and he wrote revelation and, you know, this kind of stuff. But, you know, it was just to see that he wasn't seeking his own glory. I'm not saying John or anybody else was, but he wasn't seeking his own glory. That was just really, it really took me back. All right. So I hate to say this, but we're going to start tonight on page 33. Yes. I just said the number 33. I can't stand it when I do that. I try so hard not to have chapters start like on those page numbers that people think I'm trying to give some cryptic, you know, wink, wink messages to my employers. Um, I'm really not guys. It just so happened to fall on page 33. So here we are, the church of Britain. All right. Now, if you watch the, I'm giving the longest introduction ever. If you guys watched the last video, um, I actually ended with this and I gave the promise that there was more to come. I'm just going to reread, reread the beginning of the Britain passage. So it's, if it sounds familiar to you, it won't be for, for long. Here we go. There is a great, there is great debate as to who founded the church of Mary Old England. Mind you, it is not the identities of its founders being contested, but rather who it was that landed at the cliffs of Dover first. On our last go-round, I purposely left out Aristobulus. Uh, I left Aristobulus off the list of those mentioned in Shaul's, I should say Paul's, epistle to the Romans. And no, I wasn't snubbing him. It is only because I'm not a fan of eating the icing before the cake. With Aristobulus, we are also given the cherry on top. Think back. Do you remember how Shaul referred to him? Salute them which are of Aristobulus's household. Shaul didn't ask for Aristobulus to be saluted, only his household. That can only be because Aristobulus had departed for Britain by then, and everybody knew it. Claudia likely had a part to play in organizing his trip. She was someone who I had mentioned in uh, the, uh, a member of the, the Church of Rome. It is also a very good guess that Aristobulus set sail for the British Isles because word had reached Rome, again through Claudia's family, that Joseph of Arimathea and Mary Magdalene had arrived. And there you have it, the founders of Christianity in Britain. And then I show these pictures here of Oxford. Um, I may talk about this in here, but the, I had the pleasure of staying in Oxford for a month. And it, it just it's the most one of the most beautiful cities on earth. It is it's stunningly glorious. Uh, if you need references references to it, if you've ever seen the X-Men films, uh, I, Professor, it was at Xavier, whatever his, his college for the mutants is filmed there at Oxford. Uh, the Harry Potter films were filmed there uh, and so many others. There's just, there's so much that has gone down there. 
and then you probably know about like uh, Professor Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and uh, the 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 child pedophile uh, uh, Lewis Carroll of Alice in Wonderland. Um, anyways, they were all there. How do you even sum Oxford up into five pictures? It can't be done. While traveling, oh, see, I do talk about it. Watch. <laughs> I'm sorry about my Europe stories, guys. While traveling through Europe, my wife and I stayed in Oxford for an entire month. Never mind the sheer number of inheritors and controllers who employed Oxford as their choice base of operations. Despite the stench of its alumni, I can tell you from firsthand experience that Oxford is one of the most heavenly cities upon the earth. But also, I am only choosing one city in all of Britain as an example. Never mind the fact that London is the current financial center of the world and on par with the Vatican by way of controllers. Is that any coincidence? The pristine beauty of more civilized of a more civilized and advanced age could be found everywhere on the island. Clearly, the millennial kingdom of Messiah made a name for itself there. The reason why is rather straightforward. Everything that we can find in the recent books tell us that Britain was the first geographical location to offer Christianity as a state-sponsored religion. Even Rome doesn't deny it. That is to say, Joseph of Arimathea and his entourage arrived very early on. How early? We shall go over that soon enough. The locals heard their message and they embraced it as their own. I will show you documentation of that fact in a little while, but in the meantime, Stop and ponder the magnitude of their success. Though Yahusha was rejected as king of Yerushalayim, Yosef was capable of claiming him the king of Britain. And I, I actually, I, when I first wrote that, I, I meant that symbolically. I, I kind of feel that literal now. I think he was, I kind of suspect, I'll tell you next week why, I suspect he was actually crowned king uh, in Britain. I think there's evidence to show that. It is for this reason that Britain was so greatly rewarded. Aristobulus in Britain, page 36. In his letter to Rome, Shaul never refers to Aristobulus as Aristobulus of Britannia, and yet that is what he is called. I checked. The first bishop of Britain was one of the 70. Those aren't even the, beginning, uh, the beginnings of his qualifications, though. Aristobulus was not only a Levite, but he was also Kepha and Andre's father-in-law. I probably should have warned you before dropping that little nugget several pages earlier. Oh, but there's more. His brother was Barnabas, who, according to the Clementine homilies, is a stand-in for the apostle Matthias. Either way, Yochanan uh, Marcus, or John Mark, is a cousin. His relations don't end there either. Tradition has long held Aristobulus and uh, Zavidi, or you know, the, the sons of Zavidi, to be the same person. That would not only mean Aristobulus was the father of the apostles, Yaakov and Yochanan, James and John. His wife was the Virgin Miriam's sister, uh, Miriam Shaloma. Are you feeling dizzy yet? <laughs> it's all <laughs> these guys are just one family. It's like they all got together for, for the holy days together. They're just one family. That would make Yochanan and Kepha in laws, uh, in law brothers, and cousins to Messiah. Aristobulus was Yahusha's uncle in law. Yahusha's entourage was nearly all related. You may, you may be asking why any of this is important. Well, for one, this was kingdom business, and as you would expect of nearly any duke or duchess, blood is thicker than wine. Knowing now that he was the father of Andre, uh, Shaul, Shaul's nod uh, to Asyncritus, uh, uh, Phlegon, Hermes, 
Petrobas and Hermes, as well as Urban, Stashes, Ampliatus, Apelles, and Nar Narcissus cannot be casual. All right. So this is going back to what we were talking about in the, um, the Church of Rome. Why isn't what isn't known about Aristobulus is his fate. He was older than everyone, with the exception, perhaps, of Joseph of Arimathea, who was also very old, and so would have succumbed much sooner by default. Some claim he was martyred in Wales, but the general consensus is that he died in peace, like Miriam of Migdal and Joseph of Arimathea. But you probably already know what I'm thinking. If Aristobulus or the other two mentioned lived to the 40 years out, uh, 70 AD, from Messiah, then Yahusha very likely came for him. Those were his promises uh, to that generation. Man, there's a lot of spelling errors in this. I'm sorry. And I have already written about it. Though I think that he and Yosef were clearly old. They, they, they died in peace, like the stories say. If Aristobulus did succumb to age, then it is thought to have happened at Glastonbury Abbey. Yes, you have heard me right. Glastonbury Abbey. The one and only. Aristobulus was the first bishop of Britain and the keys to Glastonbury dangled from his belt, right next to his Levite tizzits. Glastonbury has since been destroyed at the hands of our controllers, like so many other cathedrals across the realm. No surprise, really, that they destroyed this one. But as you can see by the mock-up above, it was at one time glorious to behold, as we would expect of a millennial kingdom structure. Glastonbury, though, do I need to spill this out for you? The father of Yochanan and Yaakov and the brother of Barnabas, as well as the uncle of Yehusha HaMashiach, has just been identified as having inhabited the very grounds which sponsors the gravesite of King Arthur and Queen, Queen Guinevere. Now, hopefully you can see that's a preview where I kind of want to take this. I'm not taking this here next week, but in the future, uh, I am really interested in the Camelot story. And um, are there clues to be found in that? And I think that there are. All right, next section, Yosef of Arimathea in Britain. Why am I not surprised to learn that Yosef of Arimathea is accredited with being one of the very, uh, with one of the very first to depart from Yehuda, particularly since it is Miriam of Migdal which accompanied him on his journey? By now, you have probably been made aware that I hold Miriam of Migdal to be the betrothed of Yehusha HaMashiach. Wow, I just dropped a bomb. I didn't think that was in there, but yeah, so you guys know that's my view. It's okay if you disagree with that. It's my view. You can read about it here. There's the link, Miriam of Migdal. Which, if you guys are interested, I'd like to give a presentation uh, on further developments on that, if you guys are interested. Yosef, um, it's probably not Sabbath matter uh, material, though. Yosef is one of the few people mentioned in the New Testament who was called righteous. Yes, righteous. I counted eight names in total. That number includes Yosef, the father of Yehusha, as well as Yehusha. Another fun fact is that Yosef of Arimathea was Yehusha's uncle. And so it only makes sense that he would pull her away to safety, Miriam of Migdal, that is. There are actually various apocryphal traditions which tell of their plight, and the Golden Legend, which I'm about to feature, is just one of them. And so this comes from the Golden Legend, which is just so everybody knows is, a, is clearly a Catholic text. So it is what it is. There was that time with the apostle St. Maximin, which was one of the 72 disciples of our uh, Adonai, to whom he blessed Mary Magdalene, was committed by St. Peter. And then when the disciples were departed, St. Maximin, Mary Magdalene, and Lazarus, her brother. So that's really interesting that just if you pay attention there, they say that Mary is the, 
the brother of Lazarus. All right. So La- Lazarus and Mary, uh, Martha, her sister, Marcel, chamber of Martha and St. Sidoni, which was born blind and after uh, illumined of our Adonai, all these together and many other Christian men were taken of the miscreants and put in a ship in the sea without any tackle or rudder for to be drowned. But by the uh, purveyance of almighty Deus, uh, they came all to Marcellus, the golden legend. As you can see, Maximin was one of the 70. It says 72, but we'll let that slide. Accompanying Maximin and Miriam were also Miriam's sister, Martha, as well as their brother, Eliezer, and somebody named Sidoni. No time to detail them now since we're technically still dealing with the Church of England or Britain, not France. And the footsteps I am tracking are those of Yosef. But wait, Yosef is never mentioned in this account. He was on the same boat, though. So what gives? At least we have further verification that Eliezer and Martha were siblings of the Migdal. Curiously, somebody named Cardinal Baronius said something very similar. The boat story is recalled and it involves Yosef. We are told Baronius lived between 1538 through 1607, centuries after the Golden Legend was written. A juicy tidbit, however, has Baronius being curator of the Vatican Library in 1597. I know, right? The Vatican Library. Talk about having the keys to the kingdom. I mean, that's like an amusement park down there. I would just be like, oh, man, <laughs> just show me where like there's the vending machine, the bathroom and where I can sit and read all these books. You figure that his story of the world is hidden down there. How many times in recent decades have they, quote unquote, discovered some lost books down there, which nobody has heard about for thousands of years while doing their spring cleaning? Exactly. We are never told about the U-Haul truck backing up into the Alexandrian library, but you and I know it's, bur- it's burning as a, a convenient story. Anywho, here is what he says on the matter. In the year AD 36, the party of Joseph of Arimathea and those who went with him into exile was put out to sea in a vessel without sails or oars. This vessel drifted and finally reached Massilia, where they were saved. From Massilia, Joseph and his company passed into Britain, and after preaching the gospel, there died. Well, that's odd. Now we have Joseph of Arimathea being put out to sea in a vessel without sails or oars and arriving at the same location, Marcellus. I'm probably pronouncing that French word uh, wrong, and I apologize. You guys know I have a California tongue. But there is no mention of Miriam of Migdal, whereas the Golden Legend has Miriam parking it in southern France. Baronius advances Joseph northward across the British Channel. Perhaps we shall have to look closer at the drifting boat story at another time and rectify if we are dealing with one incident or two, because as I've already stated, our current focus is upon the Church of Britain being established. Eventually, everybody dies, unless they are resurrected at the glorious appearing, that is. In the case of Yosef, however, he was already old and wouldn't have lasted another 40 years to see it. You're probably wondering why I marked the word died in red then, in the above quote. Notice what it doesn't say, that Yosef was martyred. No, he simply died. From what I can tell, nearly everyone agrees with those sentiments. He simply died. And like the fate of Aristobulus, another old man, their peaceful uh, last days is telling. More evidence that England was the first, very first nation to embrace Yahushua HaMashiach as their high priest and king. Before I forget, Yosef and Aristobulus weren't the only two to reach the British Isles. According to uh, this guy named Fre- Freculbus, 
the 19th century bishop of uh, Leso, the apostle Philip journeyed from Gaul to England as well. His purpose is a predictable one. Quoting from his work, The Twelve Books of Histories, which is a source of information about the conversion of Gaul, uh, this, this dude, uh, Freculfus, stated the obvious. To bring thither the good news of the world of life and to preach the incarnation of Yahushua HaMashiach. Now, I don't know if I mentioned... Oh, I do. Let me keep reading. So now we have Philip and Britain proclaiming the good news in Britain as well. I'm willing to bet... Man, this is the Rivka era, guys. I'm sorry. There's... I, don't have the chance to look this over, but I'm willing to bet the gospel of Philip was written to the Druids and the Celts. All right. And I want to back that claim up someday. I, I am floored by how awesome the gospel of Philip is. And I really think that he was writing that in Britain to the Celts, to the Druids. And when you, when you start looking into the Druids, um, where they came from, that's a whole nother discussion for another time. But I think he knew what he was looking for. And he knew the history of the Druids. Such a notion makes far more sense when recognizing Miriam as a central theme of his gospel in the Gospel of Philip. Miriam is everywhere in that gospel. Like she, she is literally the theme as the bride in that book. And now we see that Miriam of Migdal would have been a point of contact. So I kind of think that he was writing this book to a people uh, where Miriam was at his side. And they're asking questions about her. And he's saying, well, well here, you know, here it is. Here's, here's my gospel. It'll explain everything. The medieval English historian John Capegrave, who died in the whereabouts of AD 1464, according to official history, of course, cited from a manuscript which had supposedly been discovered by Emperor Theodosius in AD 379 through 95 at the Praetorium in Yerushalayim. From this source, he stated that Joseph came to Philip the Apostle among the Gauls. I can only assume the location of their meeting would have been modern-day France, since it is there where Yosef, Miriam, Eliezer, and others landed in a boat without oars or sails and then parted ways. At any rate, there are several colleagues of Yahushua HaMashiach who personally attended to the Church of England. And as you shall now see, all surviving records seem to agree. Britain was the very first nation to embrace the kingdom of Messiah. All right, so we're on page 43. Britain, the first Christian nation. That was kind of a controversial phrase. I didn't know if I want to call it the first Christian nation. Uh, you know, they use the word Christian, but it is what it is. You guys know what I mean by that. The earliest historical reference that I can find to the Church of England goes all the way back to Tertullian, of all people. That places us anywhere in between the years 80, 155 through 222, the mile markers of his birth and death, and here is what he has to say. The extremities of Spain, the various parts of Gaul, the regions of Britain, which have never been penetrated by Roman arms, have received the religion of Mashiach. Tertullian was writing no more than 152 years after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. We are told he lived in Carthage, a Roman province of Africa. The Catholic Church had not yet become the official sponsor of Rome. In fact, some of the worst persecution was still to come under emperors uh, Diocletian, Maxi Maximian, uh, Galerius and Constantius. And what a mouthful. And just <laughs> look at all those locations being mentioned. Not only had Britain and Spain embraced Yahushua HaMashiach, but Gaul as well. Gaul was a wide swath of earth first named by the Romans to denote the boundaries of present-day France, Belgium, 
Luxembourg, most of Switzerland, parts of northern Italy, and Deutschland, west of the Rhine. Much of those areas were inhabited by the Celtic and um, Aquitani tribes. And this is all what I hope to cover in the series. I mean, like, um, that's, that's where, like, the glorious kingdom was in those places, the place that embraced the kingdom first. What Tertullian appears to be saying is that the kingship of Messiah was flourishing in all the areas where Rome had yet to penetrate. Those just so happen to be all the places I want to explore as demonstrating residue for the millennial kingdom. And Tertullian is telling us that Messiah was welcomed with open arms there. No wonder why Rome made the controversial, wink, wink, decision to embrace Christianity. The wolf needed to play the part of the shepherd so as to win over the trust of the sheep. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer, that sort of thing. The very reason why the people who run the world today, <clears throat> Rome, hug the Bible to their bosom. In little time, AD 230, to be exact, according to the official narrative, I always have to throw that in there because people, you know, have to correct me on that. Origin of Alexandria would make a similar claim. And this is what he says. The divine goodness of our Adonai and Savior is equally diffused among the Britons, the Africans, and other nations of the world. Like Tertullian, Origin was a resident of Africa. Why the fascination with Britain then? Britain seemingly resided on the opposite end of the realm and remained completely independent from Rome's world order. Considering all the persecution afloat, Britain is quite suddenly coming across like the land of opportunity. Our next source was a third century priest in the Church of Rome, though his origins, it seems, stems from Africa. Sabilius manages to give clarity to what has already been stated by Tertullian and Origen and what everyone else in the following so many pages will be laying claim to. In AD 250, he wrote the following. Christianity was privately confessed elsewhere, but the first nation that produced it as their religion and called it Christian after the name of Christ, or you could say of Mashiach, was Britain. And there you have it, folks. Sibelius just laid it right out in the open. Britain was the first. There may have been other nations to rise to the occasion, but the emissaries of the Besora to Britain were deemed an immediate success. Here's a quote from Eusebius, the early church historian, which complements the claim being made by Sibelius well. Sometime between 8260 and 340, he wrote, The apostles passed beyond the ocean to the isles called the Britannic Isles. Another clue. Britain was the first nation to embrace Yahushua HaMashiach in part because the apostles had beheld the white cliffs of Dover. I bring that up a lot, but it, <laughs> it really is awesome when you land in, in Britain and when you come over from France and like there's the white cliffs of Dover. We are not told which of the apostles, but that is okay. Perhaps we will discover their names elsewhere. Arnobius is yet another Christian apologist from Northern Africa, specifically Tunis Tunisia, whom we are told was writing in the whereabouts of 8300. Here's his claim. So swiftly runs the word of, of Dias, I guess, uh, that uh, God, that through that though in several thousand years, Elohim was not known except among the Yahudim, the Jews. Now within the space of a few years, his word is concealed neither from the Indians in the East nor from the Britons in the West. If you guys all wonder why I keep the words like God and that stuff in there, it's because I'm not trying to make it politically correct to Hebrew language when they weren't writing Hebrew, just so you know, because I get asked about that. The, quick about, the quip about Elohim not being known except among the Yahudim and for the matter of several thousand years is noteworthy since scholarship has pointed out how 
Arnobius appears to have written his work while still a recent convert. So fresh was his declaration of faith that he possessed a very limited knowledge of scripture, knowing nothing of the Torah or the Tanakh, and what he may or may not have understood of Messiah was never quoted from any gospel. What he did manage to maintain as, uh, as an influence were the writings of, well, Plato, ultimately, neither of him or uh, Luke, Lucretius. I, I, I've never read his work. I'm very familiar with Plato, neither of whom were Christian. How deep Arnobius delved into the faith at a later time is anybody's guess. His lack of knowledge in the way of scripture, however, gives his witness regarding the British Isles even greater weight, in my opinion. With quotes such as this one, his appreciation seems to lie along the fact that he was part of a swelling movement, one which involved the outer rims of India and Britain, and the spaces in between, naturally. But there is something about the continual mention of Britain throughout all these mentions uh, which seems to give it the brushstrokes of the latest and the greatest promised land. Certainly a happening place, particularly for guys like Arnobius, who, after jumping ship from paganism, were responding to the persecution of Emperor Diocletian and his like, sticking it to the man, so to speak. That's what he seemed to be doing, you know, sticking it to the, to the establishment. And then notice what else he says. The good news had only taken the space of a few years to manifest in those places. That lines up exactly with what uh, Sibelius and Eusebius had earlier stated. Dorotheus was the Bishop of Tyre, and when writing about the importance of Britain in AD 303, does manage to drop us a name. Two of them, actually. Aristobulus, whom Paul saluted when writing to the Romans, was Bishop of Britain. And Simon Zelotes preached Hamashiach through all... um, of Maritania and Africa, uh, uh, the less. At length, he was crucified in Britannia, slain and buried. Aristobulus is someone whom we have already encountered. As you can see, the very Aristobulus given to us in Paul's epistle to the Romans was the Bishop of Britain. This is the first I have heard of Shimon the Zealot, though. Crucified, too. Perhaps we should keep snooping around to see what comes up. Wait, I found one. Jumping ahead in his story to AD 802, or is it simply history by this point? I don't know. Shimon the Zealot makes another appearance. This time he is mentioned by the Byzantine historian uh, Nicephorus, or Nikephorus, no, I guess Nicephorus, a patriarch of Constantinople. I know. Let's try to stay focused, though. Here it goes. He says, St. Simon, surnamed Zelotes, or the Zealot, traveled through Egypt and Africa, then through Mauritania and all Libya preaching the gospel and the same doctrine he taught to the peoples of the, uh, I guess it's the Occidental Sea and the islands called Britannia. Boom. There's your second reference to the Apostle Shimon in the British Isles. Let's keep reading. Our next reference derives from Jerome. Dun, dun, dun. In case you are are still left unaware, he was a propagandist for Constantine and apparently residing in Bethlehem, of all places, in AD 378 when writing, uh, From India to Britain, all nations resound with the death and resurrection of Christos. There it is again, India. Perhaps we will finally get around to the opposite end of the world in our investigation. As a preview, uh, Teom, or Thomas, was a disciple of Yahusha, and he is said to have brought the faith to that region. 
in his lifetime. So obviously there is much ground to cover in our quest to uncover the uh, Millennial Kingdom. But at present, Britain is once again featured. Rome undoubtedly coveted England and could hardly think to bring up the spread of Christianity without making mention of the free world. A mention from uh, Chrysostom gets even better. I checked. He was yet another patriarch of Constantinople. Let me say that again. Another patriarch of Constantinople. I know. Well, this is what he wrote in 8402. The British Isles, which are beyond the sea and which lie in the ocean, have received the virtue of the word. Churches are there founded and altars erected. Though you should go to the ocean, to the British Isles, there will you, you will hear all men everywhere discoursing matters out of the scriptures. That's kind of an exciting thought. With a different voice indeed, but not another faith. With a different tongue, but the same judgment. Still trying to round the sheep up into the lion's den, I see. Why hadn't Britain received a memo that Rome had converted to Christianity? LOL. Hopefully Britain doesn't take the bait. I'm kind of re referring to the uh, Arthurian literature. And it, as you guys, if you guys know King Arthur, uh, he was, interestingly enough, the, the nephew of Joseph of Arimathea, according to some sources. So that's interesting. Uh, and he was very much against uh, Rome and the Pope, and he had his own religion there. And Rome was trying very hard to coax him and Camelot into their their clutches, and they never could. And so it's kind of interesting that you see Rome always saying that uh, Britain they're independent of us, but they're the same faith. Why don't they come in to you know join the party? Speaking of which, Britain's reputation apparently prompted Saint Augustine to take some action. His name comes up often around here, and so you should know full, full well by now that he was a propagandist and in all likelihood a knock of some sort. And not good news then, since we are told there were boots on the ground in 8597. Yeah, Augustine arrived in Kent with the exclusive purpose of establishing a Catholic stronghold, apparently even setting up shop in Canterbury. The concluding letter he wrote to Pope Gregory is certainly strange, seeing as how Britain was apparently pagan and in need of gospel emissaries from the Club of Rome. That is sarcasm on my part and a hard pass, by the way. This is what he says to Augustine, to Pope Gregory. In the western confines of Britain, there is a certain royal island of large extent. Surrounded by water, abounding in all the beauties of nature and necessi necessaries of life. So he's basically saying here, like, this is, <laughs> this is good soil. We should, we should take this. In it, the first neophytes of the Catholic law. Uh, uh, Deus, or God, beforehand, acquainted, acquainting them, found a church constructed by no human art, hmm, but by the hands of Christos himself. For the salvation of his people. That's interesting. The Almighty has made it manifest by many miracles and mysterious visitations that he continues to watch over it as sacred to himself and to Mary, the mother of God. So <laughs> what in the world is going on? Many Christian writers had already affirmed Britain's fame, but this is the first instance that I can find where we are given an up-close glance from an outsider. Sure, Augustine's intel report affirms the Brits were the first neophytes. Tell us something we don't know already. But then from there, his description of the place escalates into something seemingly mythological. 
What are these manifestations of the Almighty by way of miracles and mysterious visitations? We are not told, except that the Almighty continues to watch over it as a place which is sacred to himself. I mean, think about it. That's a really odd thing for a Roman spook to write to the Pope of Rome. I mean, that would be insulting in any other way. Like, were you saying that the Almighty doesn't watch over us? Like, what are you saying here, St. Augustine? The same couldn't exactly be said of the Holy Land at that time. Uh, quite the communications, wouldn't you agree? Was there any other nation in the Roman wor world where Christianity was spoken of in this way? Maybe we will find one on the journey later down the road, but I dare say Augustine's message would have us believe Britain was indeed a happening and holy place to be. While the rest of the world went on and on in praise of England, the earliest writings I could find from anyone claiming to be a native of Britain rather than North African, and who could therefore confirm how jolly a time it truly was to be a Celt, belongs to a certain monk named Gildas the Wise, but not until AD 550. Here's what he says. We certainly know that Christos, the true son, afforded his light, the knowledge of his precepts to our islands in the last year of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar reigned for 22 years, ending in AD 37. Some would claim that's four years after the resurrection, if 33 is the mile marker, but I'm not saying that to be the case. We have already been over this. We have been over this already. At 40, a 40 year generation could be found existing between Yahushua's crucifixion and the destruction of Jerusalem. I actually talked about that in the first part if you watched the video and read it. The, 30, the year 30 would then chalk on seven years in total before the first arrivals, that is. That's slightly more than the few short years recorded by Arnobius. Still not bad, though. If anything, it highlights the probability that the emissary's arrival was a wild success. Edits. I take that back. There is an earlier reference to Christianity in Britain, as official history goes. I, so I found this after writing that part. It belongs to a guy named uh, Melguin of Landaff. Sounds very Welsh to me. The, the uncle of St. David, not, not the King David, but a guy named St. David, the Welsh bishop of, uh, I can't even pronounce that, Menu? I, can't, I don't know. The date of its composition is attributed to the year AD 450. And I probably say this way too often, but it's telling. This is what he says. Joseph of Arimathea, the noble Decurion, received his everlasting rest with his 11 associates in the Isle of Avalon. He lies in the southern angle of the bifurcated line of the oratorium of the adorable virgin. He has with him the two white vessels of silver, which were filled with the blood and the sweat of the great prophet Yehusha. What I should have, what I should have said when prepping that quote is nerd alert. It's not simply that we see Joseph of or Joseph of Arimathea making an appearance in Britain again. Or coming to learn that he had 11 other associates to work with, all of whom seemed to escape the fate of crucifixion, unlike Simon, we are introduced to the Isle of Avalon, once again pitting us in King Arthur territory. Oh, but there's more. The two white vessels of silver, which were claimed to be filled with the blood and the sweat of Yahusha, ties Joseph of Ar and Arthur into the very cradle of the Grail legend. As you can tell, I desperately want to cover uh, King Arthur. Now, that ends this section. I'm going to 
give you guys a quick preview because this all I had written of the next section before I cut it off into a PDF. I already have like another 10 pages added. And uh, by next week, it's going to be a very long, meaty section um, detailing the, uh, well, there it is. There's the, there's the giveaway. People of the Covenant and the Kona Scone. I'm going to be talking about the Kona Scone. And I'm telling you guys, the, it's phenomenal. And it's all through the Bible. And when we talk about this next week, it's going to, in my opinion, cement, in my mind, it's cementing the idea that, um, that the tribe of Ephraim uh, was the English and uh, during the Millennial Kingdom. And that is where Yahusha very likely may have decided to rule from. Or definitely be coronated as king from. After initially publishing this paper, I was told by one reader that I had completely missed the bus and bumbled the ball, among other idioms, on the Church of Britain situation. Don't get it wrong, in the game of cold and hot, I was scalding. What had apparently happened is that I was howling off down the hound trail and in the right direction, mind you, but had failed to read the big, bold letters embedded into the hillside, Britain. On the White Cliffs of Dover, of course. It's a Hebrew word. Yes, you heard me right. I nearly choked on my tea and puff pastry when reading the very thing. Looks like I have another homework assignment in the making, as the Celtic language very likely developed out of the ancient Hebrew language as well. The Celts being descended from Yashorel and all, as were the Scots, as were the Saxons, as were the people of Denmark. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. It means covenant, in case you were wondering. The word Brits or berif carries with it the sense of cutting. You will recall how Abraham personally observed Yahuwah passing between the severed halves of an animal in Genesis 15, 17, when a, well, double A, when a covenant was cut with them. To add to that, the word for people in Hebrew is uh, am, am. And so the term covenant people in Hebrew would be Brit M, which is rather close to Britain, don't you think? Even the word ish or um, I-Y-S-H or just simply I-S-H in Hebrew means man. British, therefore, directs us to the covenant man or perhaps the covenant men. They are coming, you know. I am reminded of it often around these parts, come every July. The British are coming. You may be wondering how that connects us with Yasharel. Simple. They too are the people of the covenant. It says so right here. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and guard my covenants, uh, bariti, that's the Hebrew word there, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Yasharim. Obeying his voice is identified with guarding his covenants. But then why does Yahuwah specify the entire earth is his? I prompt that question solely based upon the fact that Britain is nearly a world away from ancient Yasharel. Perhaps he was setting the diaspora up, letting them know that they could still turn to him in their dispersion and become a peculiar treasure, if indeed they guard his co covenant. It means wherever they are or happen to be when penitent hearts begin to call upon his name again, they too can become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, even if it's an island in the Atlantic. All right, well, that's all I have on that tonight, and I'm setting it up for next week, and we're going to be talking about that and um, going into a lot more detail on the history of Britain and so on and so forth. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. It was kind of a lot of um, quotes from, I know, different founder, you know, kind of 
post apostolic fathers and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, it is what it is. So let me know your thoughts, guys. I'm handing it over to you. The the, the defense rest I handed over to the jury.